Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I think that um, it's important to understand just how this work goes. Uh, This is tough work. Uh, after reading John Hopkins' report and beginning my listening and learning tour, um, we've got some challenges that we've got to be able to um, conquer. And I will say this, I've got a rule of thumb that you know the school transformation model, the research says it takes three to five years, um, but we're expecting to ensure that kids are learning uh, right off the bat. Uh, this is a process. It's very, very difficult work, and it's gonna take a huge effort. So we've got to do three things. We've got to make sure that the community is involved. We've got to make sure that we've got the best talent and we're exposing kids, our children, to the best curriculum possible. Give us an example. When you've been a high school principal in two different districts, what's an example of a school or district where you made some really measurable gains? So I'll talk a little bit about the work that happened uh, while in Chicago. I was the chief of schools on the south side of Chicago and uh, we had some really tough high schools. And when I inherited that portfolio of high schools, the average ACT score was about 15.3, 15.4. And prior to my transitioning out, or right around the time, we had gone from a 15.4 to the mid-18s. And we know that obviously 18 on an ACT is good, uh, not necessarily where we want our scholars to be. We want them at 21 and above. But once you get the 17 threshold, it gives you much more opportunities than you would have at uh, scoring at a 14 or a 15. So really proud of the work that we've done. And also, there's a recent study that was published by Stanford that talked about the 1.5 years of growth uh, at the elementary level, grades three through eight, year over year between the years of 2010 and 2014. And we were fortunate enough to be part of that work. Uh, you've got to make sure that the curriculum is viable and it meets the need of kids and it's got to be culturally relevant and culturally sensitive. You've also got to make sure that you got the best teachers and the best leaders in front of kids. We know that teachers make the magic happen. There is no replacement for superheroes to teachers. So having great teachers, having great leaders uh, is really important. And then how do we connect uh, our community, our businesses, our families to the education process? Educating children is just, it's not the sole responsibility of the school district. It's to collect the responsibility of the school district and the community. And you also said that in Hillsborough County in Florida, you brought the number of F-rated schools down from 14 to 4. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so Florida has a grading system, uh, grade schools F through um, A through F. And uh, we walked in, having transitioned from Houston Independent School, and we had some schools that were struggling on the state watch list, and there were 14. And over the course of three years, we dramatically decreased the number of, of, of failing schools. Obviously, four is still way too many, uh, but we're proud of the results that we've been able to get. And the formula was very close. Um, how, do you, how do you call out system inequities? How do you ensure that you're getting the best teachers and the best leaders in front of children? And then looking at the needs of the children, how do you get the best curriculum? So you'll start to see a theme around what works. And I truly believe that that's part of the equation, part of the calculus that goes into sort of turning around, transforming low-performing schools. During your career, you've moved quite a bit from district to district. Tell us why that is. 
would never ever characterize myself as a first responder. They do very special jobs. Uh-huh. But I do characterize it in that I, I run to the challenge. Yeah. My whole career has been around serving in some of our highest need, most complex, large school districts. And uh, that's my why. That's where I get fulfillment from. So we've always looked for the opportunity mm-hmm. uh, for the next challenge. And there is no absence of challenges here in Providence. And we're excited about this opportunity. And we're excited about working with the entire community to do some great work. How will you work with the teachers union? Yeah, so I think it's critical to understand that labor and management have to get on the same page. We have to be on the same page because when we're not, kids are hurt. Uh, So the value that a teacher brings to the life of a child, and I always say that teachers changed my life. There's nothing more important than um, a highly skilled teacher that cares about children. I look forward to the opportunity of engaging with uh, the union because they play such a critical role in this process. And one thing that I also know that this is tough work. And if we believe as a community that we can do great things, that we can be a model for the country, then we're all going to have to give and take a little bit. So adults have to be willing, all adults have to be willing to enter into a social contract to where we look at children and say, we're willing to risk it all to ensure that you're successful. So I look forward to a great conversation. I totally expect us to get to a point to where focused squarely on children and the needs of our schools. What do you think your first step will be? You mentioned less yesterday a listening tour. Absolutely. So we're, we're going to do three things. We're going to listen. Mm-hmm. And then number two is we're going to listen. And then the third piece is we're going to listen again. <laughs> and after the 100 days, we're going to continue listening. I, I want to be a superintendent who is always in a position to listen. But I also want to be clear, there's an opportunity to act. There is a space and a speed that we have to operate because children are waiting on us. So the first thing I'll start to do is just evaluate the team that I work, that I, that I work with. Uh, we've got to design and reimagine a district for learning. So I'll be working with the commissioner and the team to ensure, A, that we're leading through the buckets that we have shared agreements on, but I think that we look at people, time, and money, and we start to refocus on how do we use those three resources to support children. How do you plan to involve the community, and are you going to be communicative with parents and other stakeholders? Absolutely. Well, a core piece of this work is community engagement, and I think you can uh, see the work that um, the group that we meet on Saturdays about. <laughs> the community design team. Yeah, yeah. They play such an amazing role. And that's a great cross-section of people who represent Providence, who have a real strong opinion about what needs to happen in school, but also have an expertise that they bring to the table. We're going to continue to leverage that group. In addition to, we brought on Nick Figueroa, who is our family and community engagement person. And he is uh, such a wizard around connecting with family. And I'm going to leverage him to be able to ensure that we're always uh, having community at the table. And also leveraging our PACs, another great team of folks that add great value to the context of this conversation. It's just I, I think what we have to be able to do is, is continue to stand on the steps of uh, the administrative center and sort of bullhorn out to the community about, what we believe schools should be, but at some point we've also got to give them the bullhorn so they can sort of talk back at us around what they want their schools to look like. So I envision a great, strong partnership and deep, rich community engagement. Between the two of you, how will you divide up responsibilities? What will each of your roles look like and how will you work together? 
Well, listen, it, the commissioner, uh, she's statewide. <laughs> she's in charge of every school district in the state, so that's really, really clear. I, I get the, the great responsibility and opportunity to work with the folks in Providence and to really roll up my sleeves, uh, get in schools, see how we can support teachers, ensuring that they've got the resources and the development. Uh, the commissioner, it's, it's, you know, in my military experience, you think about people that you want to be in that foxhole with fighting the fight. And I tell you what, it's really good to know that she'll be down in that foxhole with me because her passion and her belief for all children, uh, it's contagious. And I tell you what, I've, I've, I've caught on to that and I'm excited and I tell you what, it's gonna be great partnering with the commissioner, the community, all the stakeholders who believe in the collective promise of children. I think starting off by Harrison is part of my leadership team, right? That's part of our organization sheet part of the thinking. There's a lot of work that's already started that we will continue to work together, and this is a whole team effort, right? We've set out a vision for the entire state, and particularly for what's gonna happen in Providence, and we're gonna be working together to continue to plan that vision, tease it out, and then implement. That is gonna be our work. I am not stepping away from this work. I've made that commitment to the community, to teachers, to parents, to students. That is not gonna change. However, a lot of this needs to be implemented. Even though I'm very proud of the two and a half months we've taken over the district, we have hundreds of things that have already happened, but we're gonna be working in collaboration. You know, that is the work. I wanted Harrison to come here because of his expertise. So he's gonna use what he's good at to really implement and move the vision. And we have the same vision. It's about making a better system for kids. We're keeping kids at the forefront. We say that time and time again, and we're aligned in that. So there is no space between him and I in this work. We're gonna be doing it together. What's your feeling about the role of charters in the mix of reforming Providence? Charters have been part of the strategy. It's part of the playbook. Uh, they're public schools. And as superintendent, as your superintendent, my job, my team's job is to provide the best public options for families that we can. So the role that they play is providing great options for children. Yeah, and I think something that's important to um, highlight, Linda, is that I made a commitment when I was here. These are all public schools, and we're going to work together. And the superintendents and charter leaders have been sitting at the same table since August. They have been planning for the first time, working together, learning from one another, and visiting each other. From our traditional to charters and from charters to the traditional. So I think we need to stop having divisive conversations overall, but really thinking about all our kids. And that's the work that we've been doing. We're moving forward in that direction, and that's what we have planned also for Providence. We have to learn. Who's doing the best? We have to learn and we have to partner. We don't have the time, we don't have the luxury not to do that. And in terms of Providence's teaching force, many have said that it's not as diverse as it should be. Will you prioritize recruiting teachers of color? And if so, how will you do that? It's important. Uh, We wanna recruit and retain great teachers, uh, no matter what color. Um, But we do also wanna be clear that there is an imbalance with our our teaching core and what our students look like. And we wanna make certain that there is representation of teachers of color. And the research points are that all kids excel having had uh, exposure to a diverse teacher workforce. So that is that will be top priority because it's also one of the, the anchor plans, one of the big rocks of sort of our turnaround transformation plan, it's talent management. 
And I think we've also been pretty clear about that being a priority, especially in Providence, that we want to diversify the teacher pool. Kids need to see adults in places and positions of authority that look like them, that understand. Context matters. Understanding the kind of conversations, understanding the dynamics of the community and the culture, important important. So we know that that is something that we need to work on and we need to focus in on. What is your biggest fear about the turnaround not being successful? So I've not I've, I've not thought about that. I'm a forward-thinking person and I just think about the promise that our district has. I think about where we are now and how things have aligned from the state house to the schoolhouse and the opportunities and the resources, uh, the consensus around community that they absolutely want change and they support change. Uh, so I'm really eager to just put the car in drive and let's head on this journey because looking back, I think there's a historical context that's important, but the reality is we've got children sitting in our classes now that are being underserved. And what we need to do is focus on the here and now. It's a school today, observing teachers and visiting. And I just tell you, it's just a, it's a great opportunity for us to press the reset button, to put, to put the car in drive, and let's focus on the needs of students. Yeah, well, Linda, the way that I would answer that is I do worry mm-hmm. that we're gonna put adult agendas before children. So as we move on, we have to keep our eyes on the prize. And the prize is the education system for the students. And I've been involved in a lot of conversations that are around students, but not totally focused on students. So my fear is that we can't make that transition fast enough so that that agenda stays on the table all the time. So I do worry about that. That doesn't mean it's gonna stop us. We're gonna take it on. I think you guys have gotten to know me a little bit. We're gonna move forward, but I do worry about that. I do worry that we're not there yet. We say we wanna be like Massachusetts, but we have to rally. And that means that everybody needs to say, this is not good for kids. Is the issue in Providence largely still driven by inequitable funding, or is it something deeper than that? It's difficult to have the funding conversation, right? Because we are at a place that we have to restructure the district. We have to restructure how we are actually using the money that we have. Um, I don't believe that having the conversation of who gets more, who gets less, and, and that is the right answer. The right answer is how do we make sure that all districts get what they need? And that is not taking away from one district to give to another, but making sure that every district is given what they need to be successful. And I have to tell you, I spend a lot of time with superintendents that say to me that their funding drives their decisions and not their priorities driving the funding. So I think we need to really change that in the state. We need to have those conversations. And as we are, you know, I feel a little uncomfortable when people start talking about changing the funding formula Um, because we don't know as a state what the potential that we still have, right? We're at the beginning stages of reimagining what this can look like. I think that we need to give ourselves some time before we start really looking at what changes need to be made. And I know people will say, well, the funding formula has been around for a while. Yes, but this new vision is new. So during your time in Florida, there were reports that there was a sexual misconduct allegation against a substitute teacher and that some parents weren't notified. What do you have to say about that? And if such a thing were to occur again in Providence, how would you handle it differently? Oh, absolutely. So you stated, yeah, three years ago, we had an accusation of a substitute doing some things that 
uh, really concerned us and there's a protocol for that so the principal immediately pulled us up and called the police and called CPI launched an immediate investigation uh, the investigation came back unfounded however we still removed the sub for ever uh, being around our children just because safety is a top priority uh, but as you said there was a communication breakdown uh, we didn't notify parents and as a parent I would want to know if something happened in my child's class. So we went back and revisited our communication protocols. Uh, as chief of schools, I'm sort of three steps away from the school, but I personally call parents to apologize because I wanted them to know that it had gotten to my level and that we were course correcting the, the communication breakdown, but wanted them to know that their children were safe, they were never at any harm. But yeah, so when we find things like that, we've got a course correct. And you know, in a school district with 220,000 students in 250 schools, you know, the issues come. Um, but that was one where we had to course correct and call parents and apologize. Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.